tonight on Arena. Ruddy Doyle and the stage adaptation of his short story, The Five Lamps, and Angela Flannery and Brian Dillon on You Spin Me Round, a book of essays on music. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena and you can watch us on the live stream rte.ie forward slash arena. And before we get started this evening, heartiest congratulations, of course, to Killian Murphy, who won his first BAFTA last night for his work on the film Oppenheimer. Of course, he wasn't the only winner from this parish, one could say. Warm congratulations also due to uh, Element Pictures on the success of Poor Things. Several awards, including Best Actress for the always excellent Emma Stone the almost excellent Roddy Doyle is sitting opposite me right now, right now there. see just such a Sneak smooth segue <laughs> Roddy's short story The Five Lamps was adapted by Joe Byrne into a play for the Five Lamps Festival in 2023 it's now going on a three venue tour of the capital from the Lark Theatre in Balbriggan to the Civic Theatre in Talla and back into the city centre again to Liberty Hall The Five Lamps began a life as part of Life Without Children, Roddy's collection of short stories reflecting on our experiences of the COVID pandemic. Does Life Without Children, that collection, seem like something from some alien writer that you knew a few years ago? It is bizarre, yeah, how we measure time. Like it used to be four years was uh, the gaps between World Cups, you know, (laughs) in my life. And now it's four years coming up. In a few weeks, it'll be four years since the first lockdown started. And it doesn't feel, in some ways it feels like a uh, like a, a blink and in yeah. other ways it feels like a different life entirely. So, uh, yeah, even though that book came out, I'm not sure when it came out. To be, did it come was out it, in 2022? Or 22, yeah. 22, you wrote it, I think. You wrote it between 2020 and 2021, I wrote it between you? March 2020 because I'd been writing a novel set in the present day and about a week into the lockdown, the first of the lockdowns, I realised that the present day didn't exist anymore. Mm. And it wasn't going to, you know. So I dumped that book. First time I think I've ever done anything like that. I just decided there's no saving this. I'm not going to go back to this. And started writing short stories because I thought it made more sense capturing kind of moments Mm. because the language was changing all the time. Um, The restrictions were shifting and changing. You could go a bit further. Then it was rained in again. You could get into a pub. But by the time your pint had settled, (laughs) you had to go home. So, um, uh, but if you were eating a burger, I think you could stay a bit longer, couldn't you? As <laughs> long as the burger cost nine quid, was that the? Was that <laughs> the was, you know, when you think that we can laugh at it now, but the word, I mean, the rules and regulations yeah. that all for a reason. Let's be honest. Absolutely, you know, yeah, yeah. I think but they I, seem I'm crazy I'm, now. I'm often surprised at people who kind of look back and say that was a bit mad. Why those lockdowns? What was it? We were terrified. Yeah. Quite rightly. And the death rate was awful, you know, and the images from Italy. So I'd no problem with the restrictions, but. um, Did it give you lots of material to write? Bizarrely, eventually, yeah. You'd wonder, what can I do? I can't go out. And then actually, you know, there's a story in itself. You're you're stuck. Uh, So I wrote a kind of love story about this couple who rediscover themselves, really, because they've no one else. There's no other company. So they have Mm. to kind of. Fall onto you know, fall onto each other's company or none at all. So the opportunities were there, but it just it felt it, it took a while to work them out, really. And I'd written what I thought was the guts of a short story collection, and I wanted one more. 
It is about a year after I'd started them. So I went, went right back to the very beginning. I don't know where the idea came from initially, but I think it was the images of the city centre empty. And I had this notion of somebody trying to find somebody else and looking at the images on television and deciding, well, this is the ideal time to try and find them because the streets are empty. Mm. So there's no distraction. So I'll find him. And it's a father looking for his son. He hasn't seen him in years. And he drives up illegally from the Midlands and then starts walking into the city centre. And that's, and you know, such are the limits of my imagination that if I was walking into town, I'd be going by the five lamps. So I decided, well, I'll give him that route. <laughs> I, I wondered about that, actually, because at the time, uh, was that, well, whatever, you know, at some point in time, was it within your 5K or your 2K? Oh, certainly within my 5K, yeah. yeah. I could walk from where I live. I could walk, you know, into O'Connell Street and a bit mm. further. Yeah, and stay within the 5K. And would you have used those walks to kind of, because the, the piece is full of the geography of the city well, centre. I'd kind of, look, I'm well acquainted with the city centre mm. and I do a lot of walking and I use, you know, the bus as well and gawking out the upstairs of the bus, you see an awful lot. And, you know, that route has been my route since I was a child, either from Kilbarrick where I lived or Clontarf where I live now and various other places. And, uh so it, it didn't take much research. What I did was I'd write a bit and then I'd go for a walk and just to confirm. Or I'd look to see if my memory of a certain structure, just say on uh, Amiens Street, was accurate and come home then maybe with a, a different word or another word to add to without it becoming like I've never really gone into detail about buildings as such, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, but just to make sure that I, it, it it was fairly accurate, you know. Yeah, that the whole the overall geography of it made total sense. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's basically a straight line with a couple of curves, you know, yeah. so the geography isn't the problem. It's uh, what you're likely to see and not see. But I mean, you're you're a writer, so the powers of observation have to be finely tuned from the outset. A lot of people talked about that lockdown period that they suddenly started to see things that they hadn't seen before, you know, yeah. outside their own front door type of yeah. thing. Or tw because you only had 2K within the 2K, you went, oh, is that building is there? Or that, oh, that's where that is. Yeah. Um, did you find yourself doing that as a writer or as just a No, a just, as a, just as, as a human, human being. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny how things, uh, within a couple of months, you know, your standard rubbish would be a coffee cup and, you know, a crisp bag and one of those uh, triangular containers for a sandwich. And then suddenly there were masks all over the place. And that became the subject of one of my um, stories as well, because the, it looked really, at first... You know, how would a mask end up on the ground? Because these things, you know, there was so much talk about how to put on a mask and how not to put on a mask. And I remember listening to some guy on the radio explaining that you you, you, you had to put on the mask without using your hands, without <laughs> the hands touching the mask. <laughs> that, you know, especially when you yeah. wear glasses or whatever, <laughs> presents challenges. So uh, anyway, it became the subject of one of them because the masks were all over the place, yeah. like like blue bats, the, the, you know, the Batman logo. They oh, were yeah, all yeah. over the place. And I just thought, God... Such a strange, they seem so personal, yeah. really, and um, medical or whatever to be lying yeah. on the ground. And no guidelines on how to pick up someone else's mask and put it in the bin. Well, it, that never <coughs> even dawned on me as a possibility, let alone. <laughs> but I did imagine in one of my stories, and mm. I can't remember what it's called, a man doing just that and not actually putting them in the bin, just covering his face with them. 
I didn't. I didn't do it myself. <laughs> yeah, I know, I yeah. But of course, it, you can do things in fiction that you don't have to do in real life. Well, that's, that's the great the thing about fiction. Yeah. It, it offers life possibilities yeah. that just aren't there. <laughs> no danger involved. <laughs> um, this this man in, in and I love. I mean, the title of the Five Lambs. What other story could the Five Lambs Festival have chosen back in twenty three from the book other than the Five Lambs? Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, also, practically speaking, it's it's by a distance the, lo- the longest story. Mm. So um, if they'd gone for some of the shorter ones, you don't, the audience would only be sitting down when it would be over and they'd have to go home. So there's a, it's a good long read, so to speak. But you, you know? shifted it. You shifted it from a third person. It's a third person story, I think. The original was he did this, he did that. And Joe's idea then, uh, Joe, Joe Byrne. Byrne's notion was to make it a monologue and just I. So I had to read down through the story to see if there were consequences, if anything had to be rewritten, as, as would often be the case if you do that. Mm. But if memory serves me, there wasn't anything. Later on, I think myself and Joe would have had a few um, phone calls and, you know, email exchanges and they're tiny, minimal little changes that had to be made. So it it fit. And even though it was done during the, because the guy is strictly speaking, breaking the rules, you know, of, of lockdown, ironically, the story is about a guy walking. So it's about a journey. Yeah. And uh, the biggest challenge for me, even though I started writing the story a year after the start of the first lockdown, was getting my head all the way back, which normally isn't a problem. Like there's not much difference between, you know, today mm. and this day last year, I'd imagine. The headlines might be different, although some of them would be very familiar. <laughs> the same old <laughs> rubbish, you know. But yeah, but um a lot of the language that we were, you know, immersing ourselves in and we were hearing all day, every day, a year into the pandemic, mm. we weren't hearing at the very beginning. And it was the coronavirus at the very beginning and Dublin being Dublin, it became the corona, you know, <laughs> but that stopped after a while. It became the COVID, always the, the definite article, oh, the definite you know, article. always the definite article. But I had to go back to when it was the corona. You know, yeah. which you know, think, well, that's so what? That's very simple. But I had to park phrases like um, social distancing because we weren't familiar with them at the very at that beginning. time. Yeah, at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And it hadn't become the, the, the topic of jokes or anything like yeah. that. The other thing that struck me about the story is it, it has that, you know, it is a man on a journey. It has that kind of pilgrimage, the, the almost yeah. a kind of an everyman feel to it. It's not that he, he meets five people. It's the five lamps. I mean, maybe that mm. was a structurally just a, an that, easy that thing. That occurred to, to me as I was writing it. Yeah. That, yeah, that's the five lamps, five people. And he really, and, and this was something that a lot of people spoke about about during COVID as well, uh, and, and, and around 9-11 to, to kind of relate those two topics, the kindness of the strangers that he meets. They're yeah. not archetypes, these, these people that he meets. They are, you know, there's a woman, uh, there's a, a, a woman who's very kind to him. There's a woman to, in, in a method who's involved in methadone taking, all of this type. So he meets these people along the way. Yeah. But uh, that that aspect of it, did you have a sense that there was something archetypical about the story itself? Would you would you have that as well? Well, right? I knew it was different to anything else I'd done before, as far as I could remember, and I wanted it to be. Uh, I want you know very early on I started thinking of the five lamps, so he encounters five different people, and I think it was the lamp notion that they would all be kind. They'd be kind mm. to him. They'd help him on his way. Once. He told them what he was looking for. All doubts, hesitations, all, you know, again, restrictions drop because yeah. this man is looking for his child. And uh, 
So I didn't see them as archetypes, no. Um, I just wanted a variety of people and perhaps unexpected people. So there's a woman outside the methadone clinic yeah. on, the, on um, Amien Street. And she's lovely to him. She's really lovely to him. And again, I'd be asking myself, well, why wouldn't she be? You know? Yeah. But I suppose it's not expected. Yeah, the and she comes, is... she comes across the street to him because, you know, people will remember that you could you could step out onto a street safe in the knowledge you weren't going to be hit because there was no there was no, no traffic, traffic. Yeah. and it was before the scooters <laughs> invaded. <laughs> <You know>? if, <laughs> if, 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 if it happened now, I think that safety you'd feel, that knowledge that you can cross the road without yeah, being hit we'll, we'll be is, is gone. So I, I just looked for... People who would be kind to him, mm. but perhaps not the expected ones. Um, was there any kind of, you know, the, that kindness was there? I don't know how, whether that outlasted uh, COVID or not. It, you know, it certainly didn't outlast 9-11. It probably didn't outlast COVID. Was there any kind of reset in, you know, p- people often talked about that period being like there was kind of like we reset everything almost, you know. Was there any kind of reset in your writing or did you just find yourself once it, faded off into the distance. That four year thing, I can't get my head around fully. Oh, I don't think it'll ever. I think for uh, I think for a lot of us, it'll be pre and post COVID. You know, mm. I think it had. I don't think it's something we'll ever just forget. Um, so I have a novel coming out. I finished the proofreading this afternoon, actually coming out in September. And it starts on the day when the central character has her first vaccine jab. Can yeah. we say who the center character is? It's Paula Spencer, yeah. who I've written about before. Yeah, and in fact, this links into to Joe Byrne because Joe, who's directed this Five Lamps story, directed also directed the, the woman who walked into doors, the yeah. stage version yeah. of the woman who walked into doors. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it just seemed like a good place to start. You know, I remember that feeling coming. I I, I had my vaccination in the Helix Center. I remember being, you know, in DCU. And being really impressed at the efficiency of it, not having seen so many people and uh, in, in such proximity before and just how quickly it was all happening and smoothly it was all happening. It was so reassuring and so uh, brilliant, really, you know, that I, I was quite, um, I suppose I was a bit elated coming home. And I gave that feeling to Paula at the beginning of the new book. Yeah. Um, so if you like, it's a post. If it, it, it felt like the beginning of the end, that it was another three years or whatever, to, <laughs> or two anyway, yeah. or one yeah. and a half or two, depending on your perspective. Um, so it was far from over, but it did feel like the beginning of the end. 30 years since she first appeared to us, yes. <laughs> Paula Spencer. Yeah. You, you, you were saying, I was telling you before we came to her, we were talking about the Michael Winterbottom chat the other night mm. and, and family, which of course was the start of Paula Spencer, really, wasn't yes, it? Yes, very much the novel, so. The novel grew the novel, out of that. I, I, unusually enough, the novel grew out of the television series as opposed to the... The other way around. Yeah. The other way around. Yeah. Um, he, Michael Winterbottom spoke about the acting talent that was in Ireland at that time. I mean, I, I read out Killian Murphy and Oppenheimer, you know, the fact that we also had Paul Meskel and Barry Keoghan nominated mm. in, in, that, in the acting category as, a, as well. There, mm. Look at the Oscars for the last couple of years. Can you see what where that all started? I, I was musing today on how the commitments was a, a real flip moment mm-hmm. in in terms of Irish film. Yeah. Can you see where how it developed from that period in time? Around into about the, that time, yeah, you can see it. You can see uh, 
uh, there were, you know, trainees are on on the set of the commitments who later went on to form production companies in Ireland and made their own films. Uh, Eileen Walsh, that great actor who mm. we'll see soon in the adaptation of. Uh, um, oh, small well, things like these. They, yeah, they sorry, occur. I couldn't remember it. Yeah. She had a small part in the van. Brilliant. And I've always loved writing, even if it's a character, you know, where it's in a shop and somebody is just buying something in the shop. I always tried to give a line to the person behind the counter, a line that they'd like, a line that would, you know, be an actor's line. Mm. And um, there were 95 speaking parts in Family. Uh, I remember Andrew Eaton, the producer, telling me that, mopping his brow. (laughs) And um, actually, every one of those 95, they're great. Yeah. They're really, really great. There isn't a dud, including yourself, in the whole... um, Or maybe (laughs) accepting yourself. Well, there was no dud lines. We can say that. The the talent was there. You could see it. Like, you know, glaringly obvious in somebody like um, Sean McGinley. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's actually the Sean I'd seen on stage, but it would never occurred to me that he would have played Charlo. And that's where Michael would have come in and he saw. Michael Winterbottom. Yeah, yeah. Michael saw that Sean could play that role. So it, it offered, if you like, actors that those of us who go to plays in Dublin would have been a little bit familiar with. The screen offered them a different skill and a different way yeah. of um, of uh, using their craft, you know. So I did, it's easy to say in retrospect, oh, yeah, I saw it. Uh, but there was something happening. There's yeah. no doubt about it. And it's such a uh, it's such a nice thing to be able to think back on um, some of the faces in those films. And well, to, yourself you know, and Brendan Gleeson, I mean, old well, Brendan was in the Snapper, you know, yeah. and 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 a Passion Machine, of course. Yes, yeah, well. Brendan, the theatre company. Yeah, yeah, we were teachers. Yeah, uh, we used to rehearse at night because we had to come from work. Then <laughs> <laughs> <Ben> was Des <laughs> Jocks. <laughs> So listen, um, is it nice then to be back in the theatre with something now? Well, it is. I, You know, it was Joe's idea. So I think, you know, he did a great job. You know, I've seen it a couple of times and he did a great job. It's, um, you'd wonder, I always like a monologue when it's well delivered and it is, it's brilliantly done. But he's added a little bit of magic to it, you know. And um, yeah, oh, and O'Sullivan is the is the actor who's yes. doing it here. Yeah, and it starts with a voiceover, and then it becomes him on the stage, and then there's a, a, a I won't give it away, be ashamed to, but there's a, a piece of we, ex- we we think we're watching something, and we are, and then we're not. We're watching something a little bit different towards the end, and it's absolutely magic. Mm. So he did a great job. I don't feel responsible for it, insofar as it wasn't my idea. But they are my words, and I'm very happy with what Joe and the other people have done with it. They've done a, to me. They've done a great job. I'm going again next week in Balbriggan, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. But it was, um, I mean, I was up. I'd been wandering around Stony Batter, just wandering around, and I'd gone into Phoenix Park, and I got a text from Joe. Would I be interested in this? And that I think was uh, maybe December last year, and then. Within a couple of months, it was on the stage, yeah. you know, so it's one of those treats, you know, yeah. because a lot of the work uh, you do, like it either takes a year, two years, three years or whatever before you see it happen. And sometimes it never happens at all. So um, it was it was uh, it was nice and fast. And uh, so the the current Paula Spencer novel is proof read now. Yeah, near yeah. Enough well, it's done. Yeah, I'll be sending off. I'll have one last gawk at my 
notes and I'll send them off tomorrow. And that's my involvement, other than the fact that I wrote it. Um, but my involvement in terms of editing the rest, it's all done already. And you're going to tell me everything about the novel that's on the desk at the moment as well, I'm sure. <laughs> I'll have to, yeah, I've, I've been proofreading for the last two weeks and it tends to not just wipe out your knowledge of your own work but your knowledge of how to get home <laughs> so I'm walking around in a daze for the last few days so now I can come up for air and uh, Lord I'm not going to talk about yeah, of course you how could you because it's, it's, like, it's, it's a bit flight it's a bit like um, three buses come at you and you decide you'll take the third one and, <laughs> do you know what I mean it just yeah, makes yeah, no yeah, sense yeah. at all yeah, yeah you can't talk about it right now yeah. great to see you Roddy thanks a million and guys, yourself thank you in. that's uh, Roddy Doyle and the Five Lamps um, the play version of Roddy Doyle's story adapted by, for the to the stage by Joe O'Barn is at the Lark Theatre in Balbriggan from February 29th yes it's a leap year through until March the 2nd then at the Civic Theatre in Tala from March the 12th through until the 14th and finally at Liberty Hall on March the 22nd and 23rd. There is nothing like a particular pop song to take you right back to a certain moment in your past. Every bit as powerful as Proust's Madeleine, it could be argued. You Spin Me Round is a new anthology of essays exploring this very theme. Crossover between music and memory, from childhood family car journeys to getting into gigs underage as a teen. Who did that? Blondie, Echo and the Bunny Men, and indeed Shostakovich are just some of the lineup in the dozen or so essays on this these pages. Uh, the title of the collection, You Spin Me Round, I'm delighted to be joined by Angela Flannery with me in studio here and Brian Dillon is joining us on the line. And it was a car journey. <laughs> well, it certainly starts out with a car journey. Um, your essay, Angela. Yeah, it does. Uh, my essay, Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others, is a story of me coming of age through music as a teenager. Mm. So it starts in 1980 when I was 10 and we travelled from Kerry up to Donegal in um I think it was our Ford Escort. Uh, me, my brother, my sister, my mum and dad, you know, and yeah. listened to what they were into, country music. But I quite got into country music. And then every couple of years, you know, I well, not every couple of years, but each section, there's six parts to my essay, covers, you know, it, it, a jump of two years, mm. another two years, another two years, as I'm grown up and, you know, coming of age, really. Yeah. Kenny Rogers is the best singer in the world. I quote you, Angela yeah. Flannery. yeah. You're the second person to say that to me today, actually. <laughs> I won't be the last. <laughs> yeah. I really love Kenny Rogers. I love country music. I mean, like now if you were to ask me, I'd say that I prefer Hank Williams and I prefer, you know, Johnny Cash and all of that. But that was what my parents were listening to. Yeah. That and Crystal Gale and Charlie Pride and Chris Christopherson. And it was 1980, you know, so um, it really did. Yeah. And actually, I think I've spoken about Graham Parsons on this show. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I really do love country music. But then, of course, once I turned 14. Um, There's none of that lark. No, there wasn't. And I was really lucky. And I mean, the, the title of the essay gives it away. Uh, Some girls are bigger than others. It's obviously a Smith song. Yeah. But I turned 14 in 1984 and that was when the Smiths first album came out. And they were only around for three years. They had four studio albums in three years. And so it really coincided with, you know, the middle of my teenage years where I was kind of looking for an identity and how do I look? Am I going to back on my hair? And it was so exciting. So um, when the editors of uh, the the anthology PVA asked me to write a piece, I thought, oh, I'll write about my son because he's in his teens. And then before I knew it, I just kind of moved away from writing about him to writing about myself because I felt so passionate (laughs) about being in your mid-teens and discovering music. It's just 
it's a, a magical time. Brian, um, did you start writing about somebody else and end up back at Iggy Pop or end up at Iggy Pop just because you were pulled there? What brought you to him? Because he's the he's kind of the central. He's the core of your essay, really, isn't he? He is. I mean, like Angela, I really love this uh, invitation from PBA. I, I love when, when somebody, a, a writer or an artist, or, says to you, write about one thing, you know, one painting or one photograph. Or in this case, the, initially the invitation was one performance. And for some reason, Iggy came into my head. I think it was because I was going to see him quite soon after that uh, in London. And I thought rather than write about a single song or a single performance that I might have seen live or might find on YouTube, I would try and write about, I don't know, the the kind of adventure of shirtless Iggy Pop on stage, you know, from kind of 1967 to the present day and try and think about not exactly what it would be like to be that person, to, to, to inhabit that body. But the, just the extremity of it, you know, the the, the adventurousness um, of this, you know, 18, 19 year old throwing himself off the stage, as he said in much later in 1982 in a, a TV interview, crossing the proscenium, <laughs> becoming part of the, of the audience. Um, just that the risk of that, the absolute daring mm. of that um, and the idea that, you know, Iggy Pop turns 77 in a couple of months time. The idea that he's he's no longer stage diving, but he still has this extraordinary physical presence that yeah. seems seems somehow younger than everybody else of his generation. Well, I'm looking at the the, the picture, the photograph that is at the end of your essay in the book uh, of Iggy Pop, literally walking across the crowd, walking on water type of feeling, you know, like this miraculous uh, float across the top of the audience. They're holding his legs as he goes to kind of help him balance, and and he doesn't even he doesn't look as if he's balancing at all. He just looks he's going to take another step, and he doesn't care where his foot lands. He'll keep going. But it's an extraordinary picture. Was this a starting point for you, or did this come after the event, Brian? Um, I'd known that photograph for uh, for a long time. Um, I think I I discovered Iggy Pop, um, or I knew about him from the age of about twelve because I was a huge Bowie fan. And when Bowie was doing his Ziggy Stardust persona, he tried to do this, to walk out onto the upturned hands of the audience. And he fell. Um, the audience wasn't with him. And I knew that that he had been trying to copy this guy, Iggy Pop, who I'd never heard, um, mm. but had seen photographs of this, this extraordinary looking person, you know, covered in blood throwing himself about uh, the stage. And that particular image, which is from a, a concert in Cincinnati in, in 1970, and I'm sure lots of people will have seen this picture, just the heroism of that. I think he's, air, he's, he's, he's standing in that stance that you describe mm. on people's hands, aloft for God, probably only about 10 seconds. Um, and his whole kind of adventure in the audience, flinging himself off the stage and then being raised up, falling down again, Somebody hands him a jar of peanut butter and he smears himself with the peanut butter. And really within seconds, he's back on stage. <laughs> and the idea that, you know, it lives on that, that mm. image as it's some, it's like something out of uh, Greek mythology. It's like something out of uh, images of, you know, Egyptian pharaohs that he was obsessed with in, in his teens. It, it's, a, it's, it's an icon. It's an overused word, obviously, but it has this properly kind of iconic look about it. 
Well, certainly when I look at it, all I see is him continuing to walk on through the crowd and presuming that that's presuming that that's what he did, even though, as you say, Brian, it was maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds mm. before he was back on stage. When I go to the back of your essay, Angela, um, do you know where you were on Friday the 14th of September at 8 p.m.? In 1984. In 1984. Yeah, I was at Echo and the Bunnymen in the SFX. Because it's the ticket. It's the ticket stub. Is that your own ticket stub? That or? is my ticket stub. It's the only one that I can find from that era. You know, I don't know where the others went. And um, that was the first gig that I remember going to. And it features in the essay. Mm. And you, you yeah. went with your brother? I did, yeah. Are you going to yeah. read a little bit then? Of yeah, your, your... I'll it's, it's, it's the... Um, fourth episode in the essay. It's short. Yeah. So I'll, yeah. I'll read it, yeah. Echo and the Bunny Men are playing at the SFX. I'm a 14-year-old goth with a hairdressing regime that involves whipped egg white, constant backcombing and an industrial haze of cheap hairspray. I wear Dr. Martin boots and an old man's crombie. My mother has knitted me a massive black jumper that I never take off. If you really want to know, she hates me and I'm only allowed to go to the concert if my brother goes too. Technically, the Bunny Men's new album belongs to him. He's out plumbing with my father and earns enough to buy records. He goes around in baggy jeans and a grey check shirt that's too big country for my liking. Tonight, he's agreed to wear eyeliner and a crucifix in his ear. The only problem is I'll have to pierce his ear first. So here he is, sitting on a kitchen chair with a rolled up tea towel between his teeth. After a couple of failed attempts to get the darning needle through his ear, the ice cube he's pressing against it has melted away to nothing. His flesh is meaty, much thicker than I expected, and there's a watery pink stream of blood running down his neck. It won't hurt as much if I do it fast. I wipe the lobe, find the puncture hole and force the needle through. He grunts and books up off the chair, he slams his fist down on the kitchen table. His ear is still pumping when I put the crucifix in. I soak balls of cotton wool and Dettol and dab the wound. But the blood keeps coming on the bus into town, on the walk to Sherrod Street and at the concert as we sway and wave our arms and shout and cheer to the bunny men. My brother bleeds like he's channeling Padre Pio. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, the eyeliner will come off and the crucifix will come out. He's helping my father install a central heating system at a boarding school in Castle Knock and the nuns wouldn't like it. That's Angela Flannery reading from her essays. Some girls are bigger than others. Uh, her essay, rather, which is part of the collection you spin me round. Angela and Brian Dillon, um, both of whom have essays in the, in the work, are with me this evening. And it strikes me, Angela's, listening to Angela's uh, piece there, about the physicality of that. You know, you, you describe what you were wearing, the hair, mm. and <laughs> doing what you did to your brother so that he could wear the crucifix. It, yeah. you know, there's a kind of a, there's a visceral quality to that physicality. People were always piercing each other's ears in the <laughs> 1980s. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, they were. I, I mean, certainly I pierced my own ears. I knew people who were piercing each other's ears. So that was kind of it. But yeah, it is one of those. Yeah, I mean, it is a memory. And we've spoken about it and he would deny that he ever had his ear pierced, but he did, you know. Mm. And yeah, so that was that was kind of it. And that very much, Brian, it struck me that that physicality and the visual aspect of things is very much to the fore in your essay, we've we've talked about that picture that's at the end of the essay, but you, you make comparisons between uh, Iggy Pop and Nijinsky, for example, the, the wonderful ballet dancer. It, you put it in that area of artistic endeavour. Well, I suppose the thing is that um, for me, the, the really thrilling thing about Iggy is, is that on the one hand, he is this, as you say, kind of visceral 
extreme, apparently out of control figure on stage. Um, he's sometime, or he hasn't done it for decades, but used to cut himself, would would risk these leaps into the crowd. Mm. Um, he's really kind of on the edge. But he, if you re- listen to interviews, read interviews, he grew up um, in Ann Arbor in Michigan, in um, a place that was frequently visited by avant-garde performers. Um, and so he was really familiar with the American avant-garde in music and art and theatre at that stage. And as I said earlier, you know, he was obsessed with images of Egyptian pharaohs, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if Iggy Pop knew about Nijinsky dancing, mm. you know, Lapre Midi, Don't Phone, etc. Um, and I compare him to that, but also, you know, comic book figures, The Silver Surfer, or, you know, Mickey Rooney in A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1935, there's something kind of elementally American about how yeah. he presents himself. But he's also, he's a very learned extremist in some way. The other aspect of this, I suppose, is that, yeah, and I think you say this in the essay yourself, Brian, um, you make specific mention of you are the MTV generation. I guess that um, Angela and I are roughly the same age, um, and I guess that we were the first generation that got called the MTV generation, Mm. even though MTV itself didn't arrive in Europe until 1987. Um, So that sense that a lot of what we're experiencing as teenagers is, is, and unlike Angela, I wasn't going to gigs. I, I was experiencing all of this on on TV and in uh, in, uh, magazines. Um, and I think slightly older kids and certainly adults kind of looked at our generation as as a little bit kind of facile in terms of how we experienced um, and understood music because it always came with images. Um, and because by the mid 80s, the video um, had become so dominant. And for me, especially now looking back at that that era, the kinds of things you'd get attached to in videos to me are just mm. as extraordinary sometimes as what you were list- what you were hearing, the sounds you were hearing and the uh, uh, the lyrics you were listening to. So at the time, it was very much disparaged um, as as a form. But my God, you know, the, the I can remember the tiniest details of of obscure uh, mid eighties uh, pop videos, and so can some of the other contributors in this book. Yeah. In fact, it, that's a, one of the other essays that you mentioned, Brian, is Wendy Erskine's essay on Rod Stewart. And she's very much talking about um, the visual aspect of Rod Stewart's music when she talks about the single Hot Legs. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things I, I love about Wendy's essay, which is both hilarious uh, and really moving, is that she talks about this figure, Rod Stewart, um, and Wendy, I think, is exactly my, my age. And, and for us, Rod, by the late 70s especially, uh, I think, had, had become a, a bit of a figure of fun. Um, and so a, a song like Hot Legs, which came out in 78, and uh, has this very kind of hokey video in which it's fairly obvious that Rod himself can't quite take the whole thing seriously. A lot of it is filmed through the legs of women, you know, sometimes wearing fishnet tights and, uh, and so on. And Wendy writes about this in a very, very funny but kind of loving way, paying attention to the visual uh, details. But it's also an extraordinary, brilliant essay about being 14 and seeing in pop music and hearing hearing and seeing in these visuals a glimpse of what you imagine mm. adulthood and especially adult uh, sexuality might be like. 
And it's both exciting, but also it casts this very strange light on the real sexuality that seems to be around you, including, you know, the attentions of men who are Rod Stewart's age, right? And therefore, perhaps not, uh, therefore kind of edging towards the sinister. Yeah. It's a really great essay. Uh, similarly, uh, 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 Brian talking about about the visual aspect of things, but I think the radio was possibly mm. certainly in your early li- li- musical career or musical awakenings, shall I say, Angela, um, between um, Kenny Rogers on the radio in the car mm. with your dad, or maybe on cassettes, it might have been as well. And your mum was a fan of Charlie Pride, but neither you nor your dad mm. were having any of that. But no. the the essay that you chose. Uh, as one that kind of stood mm-hmm. out for you is about another character and it's Declan Long's essay in fact yeah. and this is again listening to the radio was yeah. a very big part of that Do you know it's funny you're so right because I suppose with essay writing you um, you know I, I you point that out and it's only occurring to me now that as Brian's talking about images it's always about sound for me you know and I worked in radio for years and I had a radio myself for years and no wonder Declan's um, essay which is about listening to Laurie Anderson in the radio mm. as he's driving with his family around the same time that I was driving with my family through Johnny Gold because we are all around the same age um, and it's just such a beautiful essay that he writes it's called Oh Superman after the Laurie Anderson um, song and he and his family are visiting their ants and dairy and they do this all the time and it's 1981 October 1981 they drive back to um, County Antrim where they live but they go the long way around uh, so that they can avoid checkpoints and uh, you know getting stopped and as they're driving in the car the family's car sort of takes on this you you get this Mm. impression it's almost like a spacecraft travelling through this very dark landscape and illuminated by sort of constellations of little towns around the place and then suddenly onto the radio comes this robotic voice and it's oh Superman and I just it really I've read this essay so many times Mm. and it's so nuanced and they're just so strong in terms of metaphor and so such a light touch that I really admire it you know I can't quite figure out how he did it but it's a really lovely lovely piece It sounds as if there's another whole bundle of essays on music in both of you uh, Brian and Angela uh, on the basis of of what you've both been saying but what I will do is I want you to bring me back to the SFX Centre in 1984 Uh, I don't know they mightn't have been playing The Killing Moon at that moment They were yeah no they would have been It's off Ocean Rain so we're getting very nerdy here (laughs) So they were playing it Bring us back there and, and we'll bring it in up underneath ourselves. Bring us back to the SFX, if you would. To what was happening there. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, If you we, can tell me. I don't know. Well, I guess I told you there when we were, when I read the piece, you know, we just showed up in our black clothes and we um, swayed and danced and my brother almost bled to death after it, you know. But it was such an incredible experience. And, you know, I remember that um, about three weeks later, the Smiths played there and we went to that as well. But this really just brings me back to being 14. And in fact, when I was writing my novel, The Amusements, this in my head was playing for those teenage girls all the time. There 
we have it The Killing Moon from Echo and the Bunny Men, as uh, heard by Angela Franny and her brother in the SFX Centre back in 1984. Uh, the essay collection that Angela and Brian Dillon were speaking to us about is called You Spin Me Round. It's published by PVA Books. Matter of Time is the latest exhibition at the Crawford Art Gallery in Cork. It's running through until June the 3rd. Displayed over two floors with two floors, I beg your pardon, with 60 works of 25 artists, both Irish and international. The exhibition explores the passage of time and its impact on the human experience. Curated by Don Williams, featuring artists such as Darren Armand, Dorothy Cross, Keith Atterton, Sarah Baum. The exhibition takes us on a journey through the many depictions of time and explores other themes such as climate change, nationhood, post-colonialism, memory and hope. Christine Leach is in Cork and she has been to see uh, the exhibition here. I suppose when we talk about temporality and that passage of time, it it sounds like quite a nebulous theme in some ways. Christine, how is it realised across these 60 different works and 25 artists? Well, you're right. There's lots of different ways that we could um, think about time in mm. artworks. But the Crawford Gallery has actually become really, really good at putting together these group shows of Irish and international artists on a theme. Um, and so what we find here is very visceral work, lots of very dramatic work. And it really varies from the very personal to the work to work that looks at much wider political um, themes and ideas. So there's a lot going on in the show. As you said, there's 60 works. It's a mm. very large show. There's 25 artists. Um, and one of the things that it does really well is it's very much anchored by, with work by Irish artists, as you've mentioned, Sarah Baum, uh, Dorothy Cross, uh, Cathy Prendergast. But it brings in this work by international artists too, which really puts all of this in context. And it actually leaves you feeling with that very strong feeling of us all being human beings in one very large world, um, experiencing time passing, as you say. So there's loads of different ways that this show looks at the experience of time. Let us tweet some specific images here and talk about the them and the artists involved. Um, I'm going to go to Yinka Shonibare first of all and I had to start with something that has 1900 hours as its title seeing as that's the time we come to air but there's a play on the 1900 here. Maybe you would just describe the, the image that we're looking at first of all Christine. This is Yinka Shonibara's um, Diary of Victorian Dandy is it? Is that yes, the one we're yeah, looking at? This, so. yeah, he, he's standing right Right in the middle of the of this group of people in a in a in a, in a I suppose a drawing room of olden times. Yeah, so this is part of a series of staged photographs um, that depict this kind of fictional life of a nineteenth century dandy who is played by the British Nigerian artist Yinka Shonibara. Um, and these works date from nineteen ninety eight, so they're not that recent actually. Um, they're very large, and they're really the first thing that you see when you come into the gallery space downstairs. And these very large staged photographs, they're really playing on. Ideas around 18th century society paintings, and especially if anybody knows the work of William Hogarth, they're flipping um, these received ideas we have around gender and race and history and society and politics. Um, and they're very staged and very stagey. They're very theatrical in mm. their gestures and their costumes. Um, but this is because one of the things that Yinka Shonabara does very well is he makes his points very loud and bold. They're very unequivocally provocative and some of the material in these images is quite, well, you don't see any body parts but it's implying a lot of um, debauchery, I would say. So, <laughs> you know, so we, and they're, and they're, 
framed in these um, large gold frames. So it's playing with scale um, and it's also talking about those themes that you mentioned. We all have this collective consciousness of that kind of upstairs, downstairs world mm. of petticoats and, and inequalities. We understand now the inequalities that existed. Um, and so his work looks at colonialism and capitalism and ideas around exploitation and power. So those particular pieces open the show with a very big, bold, yeah. dramatic and gesture. Very yeah. decadent kind of feel off them, as you suggest. Even, yes. even though everybody's fully clothed and behaving in perfectly with That's perfect right. decorum, you kind of wonder what's going on. Yeah, in so the they're background. kind of they're like history paintings. Yeah. Only they're updated with this modern yeah. sensibility. There's a lot to see there. Like you can spend a long time looking at those images and picking out details and forming narratives in your head that are based on the ways in which those people are positioned. They're all very carefully posed so yeah I'm tweeting now on at RTE Arena Nick Miller's branching and fragmenting Tikkun Olam um, again this is from the, the Crawford Art Gallery collection maybe talk to me a little bit about what Nick Miller is doing here yeah so this is a really large scale it's kind of a, it's a spiky messy sort of painting mm. and it's really depicting lots of branches you know very branches very colourful very colourful. And one of the interesting things that this show does is it includes in a lot of the wall text anecdotes from the artists, particularly the Irish artists. Um, you know, so this this painting has beside it a wall text which says these, these are um, details from an email that Nick Miller sent. But he says that this is one of the, this is the first painting that he completed during the first COVID lockdown. So he had been looking at an image of the virus, which was this purple and yellow image. And he brought that kind of idea of this spiky purple and yellow virus at that time into this work. So it you know, it's it's sort mm. of a it's it's like a flower painting in a way. There are vases there, um, and another thing that he says in the wall text is that the image of the virus is positioned within the shards of a broken vase, which is a vase he had painted when he was painting making a painting about his mother's death in 2014, and it broke when he was making this work. So there's a lot going on there. Mm. But I think this painting really points to the idea that you know there are there there are ways that we measure the passing of time, and one of them is you know he can say this is the first painting I made during that initial lockdown and that brings you right back to what was going on yeah. then you know yeah Dorothy Cross's Foxglove uh, at RT Arena to see this there's a wonderful simplicity to this it's an image obviously but it is it is a, a, a bronze cast there's yeah. a wonderful simplicity to to the look of it but the detail on it is quite extraordinary as well these are amazing so this particular one dates from 2020 as you said it's a bronze uh, cast of a fo- so Dorothy Cross picks I think every year since 2007 she's been picking foxgloves from near her studio in Connemara she casts them she casts them in wax and then she does that wax process to produce a brass piece but what's going on with these is um, she replaces five of the buds or the flowers in the foxglove with fingertips so cast uh, wax casts of, mm. of fingertips and you don't know that they are fingertips until you look really really closely and she's playing with that idea you know that children as children we would sometimes go and you know pick those and put them on our fingertips is that tradition of doing that like dipping your fingers into the flowers to make it kind of like, um, like a little mitten for yourself um, but also you know foxgloves are poisonous but then they have also been used in the treatment of heart failure so there's all these sort of um folklore traditions around them and I think for her as well it's this thing of passing time because it's an annual tradition for her at this stage I don't know if she's going to keep making them but if you're on Instagram you can actually see um, a post that she made recently about the process by which she makes these so Mm. it's very interesting to see that and of course a bronze work is something that is now permanent you know you've made this permanent bronze artwork which will last for, for, for a long time 
Um, and uh, the COVID and lockdown themes which have been there in in two of the works you've certainly mentioned to me in this particular section of our of our chat are they ever present are they present across quite a lot of the the 60 works it's interesting and I know I have mentioned that there and one of the most striking pieces in the show is Sarah Baum's piece which is called So Sick and Tired which is a neon tubing work which was actually made for the socially distanced Cork Midsummer Festival in 2020 it was hung on the wall of the sculpture factory factory in Cork and it's now inside the gallery. So again, of course, yes, this is a work that was made in response to the things we had to do during lockdowns. Um, But it's also really perfectly measured and it's really interesting to see the way that this transfers to a gallery space because on a wall on a building outside, the neon tubing looks kind of small, you know, Um, and in the gallery, it's very physically Mm. present. It's big. So the full, so it's, it's a text piece and the full text of what's written on the wall is, so sick and tired of parsimony, we long for debauchery. And it has this lovely... Um, it's just a little phrase, you know, but it, and she's a writer, of course. So she's written this beautiful phrase and it pivots on ideas around hope and doubt and anger and fear. And there's a sort of brio in it because it's neon and it's glowing. But then there's also this melancholy. So, um, yeah, so I think that's probably one of the last pieces that references COVID and the lockdowns. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm just thinking there's a mention of lockdowns in Gary Coyle's film uh, Lost in a Queue as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and and there's a, there's a, this is lockdown for sure, but Irish and Irish identity is in there as well and Lost in a Queue I presume is a, a translation Lost in the Fog Lost in the Fog yeah so this is actually a brilliant 30 minute visual essay it's narrated in the form of, of a video piece you do probably need to give yourself the 30 minutes to sit down and watch it it's a wide ranging narrative Gary Coyle is a real storyteller he's actually great at this and this is really unexpectedly compelling because it starts off as a reclaiming of Peg you know and it starts off with that kind of everybody hated doing Peg in school but then it becomes a much more wide ranging um, visual essay about Irishness and identity as you say he made two trips to the Blaskets and the first time he went he, he tried to you know go and look at things and he, he couldn't go anywhere because the fog and the mist was so bad he couldn't see anything mm. so it's it's a really interesting piece um, you know if you do go give yourself time to sit down and watch the whole thing it, it does take 30 minutes um, but yeah it's it's very interesting in ways you know looking at how our, how artists and writers and Ireland has um, responded to ideas of the West of Ireland too in particular and how that's shaped notions of Irish identity. I know that you were also ta- quite taken I think by Rula Halawani's For My Father series of photographs yeah. of her native Palestine taken back in uh, 2015. Yeah, this piece is, I mean these types of shows take a long time to plan so I don't know mm. how how long this was in the works to have these works in the show but there are 10 large scale monochrome photographs um, and they are detailing the Israeli occupation of Palestine from the vantage point of her experience going back to visit um, Gaza as a child with her late father. So uh, Rula Halawani was was born in and is based in occupied East Jerusalem. But they went every summer um, on holidays to Gaza, essentially. So these photographs, there are 10 of them in the show. Um, The piece overall, the series is called For My Father. Um, They're really profoundly beautiful. They look like large scale charcoal drawings and they're kind of dreamlike. But what happens when you look at them is you see there are, you know, this looks like a beautiful dreamy landscape, but there are warning signs of mines. There are palm trees, but there's also military tanks, you know. There's construction cranes, but there's also barbed wire and border walls. Um, And they're really, I mean, you have to 
just be quiet and look at them. You know, they're really quite silencing those pieces. They're very physically present, beautifully made, of course, and, and so pertinent right now in terms of politics. Briefly, you might give us uh, one or two others that just stood out for you just in 30 seconds. Give us two of them, if you would. Oh, uh, listen, in 30 seconds, jo- well, Joy Gerrard's hand-painted silk flasks, flags are amazing. But for me, Cathy Prendergast's work is absolutely fantastic and it's wonderful to see her wooden spool piece, The End and the Beginning too, which is made from human hair and it's made from the hair, from her own hair, her mother's hair and her son's hair intertwined ah. um, into a wooden spool. And it was made in 1996 and for me, it's one of the most iconic works of, of the 1990s in terms of Irish art. So it's great to see it in this show. And lovely that uh, cross-generational aspects to it as well. Yeah. Uh, worth seeing and it sounds as if it, you need to give it a bit of time, a matter of time when you go to see it. You do, or maybe make two trips, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one one a, a little bit distant from the other and there will be a matter of time involved once again. That's Christine Leach talking about that exhibition, A Matter of Time, latest exhibition to open at the Crawford Gallery in Cork, running from now right through until June the 3rd. You can find out full information on crawfordartgallery.ie and that's our lot for this Monday evening. Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched. Dolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Buckles was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.